It should be obvious that we cannot solve a crisis with the same methods that got us into it in the first place. This is a last chance saloon. Because if we don't really take the decisions that are vital now, it's going to be almost impossible to catch up. We will end the moratorium on extracting our huge reserves of shale, which could get gas flowing as soon as six months. If unprecedented changes are not made and made soon, there will be irreversible damage to the planet. Zero carbon. East tall. Hello and welcome to Zero Carbonista, series for Fool's Gold. I'm Ian Collins and this is the UK's number one environment-based podcast. If it's green, it's in. We are, by the way, 100 days on the day of recording this into Rishi Sunak's tenure as Prime Minister. So how's that environmental agenda going, Mr S? Let's speak to our man waving the off Rishi flag. He is the green <laughs> entrepreneur and environmentalist, Dale Vince. Dale, well, good afternoon. Well, we need a new flag for Forest Green Rovers to upset some people, so maybe that's the one. That could be the one, couldn't it? A hundred days. And that is, of course, three times longer than his predecessor. Yes, and probably several orders of magnitude less fed up already, I would say. Uh, certainly yeah. in terms of the economy. But he has lost a couple of cabinet ministers already, and he's got a third one in the pipe in uh, Dominic Rabb, it would appear. Obviously, Johnson's facing his own uh, inquiry into lies, which could see him face a by-election, which would be uh, pretty super, I think. True. So, um, true. you know, I, I think there's still a lot of entertainment in this government, yeah. So you think Rishi is a, a, a step up from Liz? Well, I don't think I don't think it was possible to step down from Liz. I know, so I don't. Yeah, think... that's, that would defy the law of physics in a way, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, so I, don't, I don't think there's any kind of compliment to him. The bar was very yeah. low. Yeah, so. that's very true. Is he? Um, has he done anything that you thought? Oh, okay. Have you, have you had one of those? Oh, okay, as it will now be known. No. Oh, okay. No, no, no. no. I mean, he, he did. He did. Re- <laughs> he did reconsider the onshore wind ban, but that was only because he faced a rebellion of his own MPs. Yeah, where is so, that, by the way? So What's he gets no credit then? for that. Uh, it's due to be in consultation in March. You know, it's kind of like kicked into the kind of. This takes. Medium. I mean, this would take five minutes. <laughs> five minutes. It's a consultation in March, and then after the consultation, there'll be a report. Then there'll be an inquiry. Yeah. Yeah. And we will get to the next election and nothing will have been done. I think that might be the plan. But, but this is frustrating because, like, you know, recent opinion polling showed that something like 70% of Tory voters want onshore wind, not just the general public, you know. So it seems to fly in the face of, uh, well, common sense or even even good politics, actually. But I think he's trying to keep his party together. There are lots of anti-wind people in that uh, in that group of Tory MPs. And, and that's his real problem, which is why he hasn't done anything on the environment. He's busy surviving day to day, I would say. I know I say this every time, but it's always worth repeating because I, I, can't, I just can't believe it. That, I mean, you just articulated it, maybe without realizing, the anti-wind people. I mean, who the f*** is anti-wind? I mean, how do you become anti-wind? At what point in your predisposition do you – is it an evolution to your anti-windness? Are you born with the anti-wind thing? Do you develop it? Do you join a cult? Are you indoctrinated? At what point do you say, I know what I'm going to, I'm going to deny the weather. I'm going to become anti-wind. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but it is 
it's exceptional, isn't it, that uh, that such people exist and and they can be quite prominent as well, and they get a platform. And it's it's like I mean it's in a it's a form of climate denial, really, uh, to say that you know onshore wind is some kind of problem against yeah. every opinion poll and against like all the facts, basically, and and of course our urgent need for cheap, reliable energy. But hey-ho. well, there is. I think there's an kind of an old school tour. It doesn't mean they're all old because there are some younger ones, but I think the younger ones generally are better on this. That sort yeah. of if the, you mentioned the word environment. And straight away, you've got kind of hippies dancing naked around trees and druids at Stonehenge. And that's the image they have. So the minute you, you know, for any point you either sympathize or, or, or agree on anything like that, you're some kind of nut job in their world. Yeah. And they've had that all their life. And then suddenly, you know, they're forced to sort of legislate on this stuff. And they can't, they just can't separate that old stereotype, really. Yeah, it must have been quite upsetting when over the last 20 years, the idea of wind energy went from being a fringy kind of hippie academic concept to being a mainstream global business with unarguable economics, because that's where it is now. Well, here's the thing. I mean, they actually use it. It's not as if we're talking about a theory here of like, oh, wouldn't it be great if they could use wind to harness some energy to, you know, to to heat homes and do, you know, this is a thing. Mm. It's already there. Mm. You've got the biggest companies in the world who are harnessing this. They might not be doing enough of it. They should be doing more of it. And governments, of course, need to play their role. But this is not an an invented notion that Mm. you're asking people to jump on board like some get-rich scheme. No, no. And that's what I'm saying. It's proven itself over the last couple of decades and it's become the most economic form of energy that we have available to us. Yeah. So there is no argument against it, actually. And it must be quite quite difficult for people that just don't like the look of them. Uh, I think know. that's it, though, isn't it? That alter- that crystallizes it because it gives them a, a kind of, you know, they've got all their isms and they're against it, blah, 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 hippies, Stonehenge, back to all of that. But then... Their, their, their kind of exhibit one, my lord, is the, the windmill. And that, that's the point where they go, see, look, you know, all of this, that you want this great big thing, you know, in my back garden for what, a bit of energy half a year. You know, it's not, that's, I think, what does it for them. I think we're on the same page. They lose their shit is the, uh, <laughs> the, the colloquial phrase, as my old nan would have said. Uh, what about this? The UK offering £600 million to keep the last steel plants going. What do you make yeah. of this? Well, I love this story. And I know we have like a U-turn corner, but we need some kind of other corner where the government does something incredibly stupid and uh, contradictory, right? <laughs> oh, I know because- what we can call it. Corner. The, uh- <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Sorry. A bit strong. A bit strong. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, a couple of months ago, our government, bless them, gave consent for the first new coal mine in Britain in 30 years or something like that uh, in the face, in the teeth of a climate crisis. You know, I think they're trolling us, actually. I'm not sure they believe it'll ever get built, but they did it. And the argument for doing it was that we need the kind of coal that will be mined there, coking coal, to make steel. At the time, Britain's two last steel makers said, well, we don't want it, actually. We get enough of that stuff from Europe. There's plenty of it on the market. And by the way, we want to move to uh, non-coal-fired steel using uh, hydrogen or electricity. Um, so, I mean, it was always a stupid-looking decision. And then weeks later, the same government offers £600 million to the same two steel producers to help them not use coal. How bonkers is that? Yeah. 
what in fact I, you know when you, <laughs> digest, you, know when you right? digest something you go hang on a sec no you, I heard that wrong but I don't yeah. think I did did I I heard no. it correctly so, so we need something new because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm believing I'm assuming this won't be the last time they do something so yeah. incredibly stupid and, and contradictory well I think I might have been right with my proposed alliterative um, <laughs> yeah. suggestion for this feature I think we, we brilliantly evidenced that that is perhaps the way to go uh, every week I try to get my head around these stories, Dale, and I fail spectacularly. Uh, the National Farmers Union raising questions about the government's proposed targets on water pollution. Not just that, tree planting, rewilding. The NFU have called them irrational and unachievable, according to documents published by the Environment Department. Yeah, I saw that and I thought, what a bunch of bastards the NFU are, right? <laughs> this is this is the bad language edition uh, of, uh, of the podcast. Yeah, we are right ripping here. it up today. <laughs> We're on fire. But honestly, the things they said about these really rather tame targets from the government—you know—to plant some trees, stop sewage going into the rivers from factory farms and that kind of stuff—and these kind of, you know, these these retrograde people running in. If you are, are like, well, no, no, we've got to we've got to carry on doing what we're doing. We can make some mild adjustments, but we can't go too far because we have to we have to keep making food. You know, all of which is really silly. There are far better ways to make food than uh, you know stick animals in a shed and feed them crops that we could eat ourselves to get a diminishing return and a whole bunch of pollution at the end. Uh, far better ways to do it. So, I mean, I mean, these guys just really need to kind of get with the times. But like any kind of lobby or industry group, they're just digging in for their own members' self-interest. But ultimately, it's not their self-interest because farmers need to transition away from what they do now to yeah. something better. They would say, of course, just trying to put my kind of farmer hat on for a second. You have they, one? They, they would say, <laughs> I have a hat for every conversation. They, <laughs> they, they would say, look, you know, it's, we're in one of the toughest industries on the planet. It's hard to even make a buck. You know, the, the, the rules and the regulations around what we do are, are crazy. You know, the last thing we need is more of that. So, yeah, it might not be ideal, but right now this is our only way to put food on the table. Yeah, and I say bullshit, right? Because we don't have to feed good quality plants to animals so that we can eat animals. We get a diminishing return from that. You know, uh, a, a negative 10 to 1 if we feed cows with, with uh, good crops, for example, to make beef. So that doesn't make any sense. We have far better ways to feed ourselves. We've just got to shake ourselves out of the old habits uh, and start something new. And, you know, our green gas mills are kind of uh, a pathway there for that, for farmers to transition. Uh, they can still grow the grass that they're currently growing to feed cows, but they can give it us to, or sell it to us to make gas. And, you know, they become part then of the green economy instead of the old one that's polluting the world and being so incredibly inefficient. I mean, there's a reason why farming is struggling, right? It's incredibly inefficient to feed plants to animals so that we can eat the animals. I mean, that's the root of it. Yeah. Would there not be, again, farmer's hat back on momentarily would they not say okay let's go with that but the transition the transitionary period will be you know many many years and we have we haven't got many years we'd we essentially have to close down our industry to start another one yeah but they will say that like the oil and gas industry does say that but the thing is farmers grow grass now 100 million tons a year to feed to animals so that we can eat the animals we can use that gas that grass, sorry, to make gas. We can pay them for that grass better than they get paid in the animal industry. All they've got to do is stop feeding it to animals. It's not a big change at all. It's not something that requires a transition by, by any stretch of the imagination. They haven't got to build anything new or, you know, or anything like that. It's a simple pivot to where we sell the grass, where farmers sell the grass, how we yeah. use it as a nation. Because 100 million tons, right, is a, is a lot of grass. Just a bit. 
Just a bit. Uh, Richard on LinkedIn says, how hopeful are you, Dale, that more green gas mills will follow? Ah, we just talked about that. <laughs> I'm very hopeful. Our first one, it's only a month away now from putting gas into the grid for the first time. And that'd be a really big moment. You know, we've been talking to anybody that would listen, uh, which doesn't include the Tories because they wouldn't listen. Uh, but we've been talking to Labour, Green Party, everybody else, the media about the prospects, about how we can make all the gas we need this new way and provide a transition for farmers and create 160,000 jobs in the rural economy and stick 15 billion a year into that rural economy and vast areas of wildlife habitats all into the bargain. Way too good to be true and get carbon uh, zero gas uh, into that same bargain. Having one that works is going to help us, I think, massively to uh, you know get on and build some more. Yeah. Uh, when we talk about industries that you've always looked at very cynically, we mentioned farming there. Um, we mentioned oil a lot for obvious reasons. <laughs> I mean, I just ask you for a moment, Dale, to hold yeah. back on this because spare a thought for one moment if you wouldn't mind, for the boys and girls over there at Shell, the global oil <laughs> giant, because shocking day today they've yeah. had because they've realized they've crunched the numbers, they've looked at the spreadsheet, they whipped out their abacuses, or is it abacai, and they've realized that after all is said and done, they've only made £32 billion profit this mm. time round. So, you know, so what you like about these people, but they're struggling, Dale. <laughs> struggling to carry it all. That's what they're struggling with. Thirty-two billion pounds yeah. during a, a a time when we're told yeah. that well, everyone's got to pay a bit more. Well, and you know, and so many. What the hell's are, going on? So many people are struggling. Right, tens of millions of people in our country alone are struggling to pay their bills. The money that they're struggling to pay is going to these oil and gas companies. Yes, Shell don't know what to do with this money, £32 billion. Pounds. They're giving £26 billion of it back to shareholders, which is you know bonus time for them. But there are very few shareholders of Shell relatively in the world uh, and in our country. Uh, but there are tens of millions of people for whom life is a real grind through this winter to pay their energy bills. Our own government are stumping up about £100 billion pounds to subsidize those bills. That £100 billion is going straight to people like Shell. And it's not free money. It didn't come from nowhere. It's being borrowed and we'll be paying it back for decades. It's all kinds of wrong that we let these oil and gas companies make these stupid sums of money out of a crisis which is hurting so many people. And of course, they, when it comes to their share of profits in this country, I think it's about 5% of that. So <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, oh, they say it's only 5%. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, big companies do this. They they offshore money quite successfully, don't they? But but even if it's true, right, they're benefited from the global uh, commodity price of oil and gas, the speculation, the fear that's driven the price up to, you know, four or five times, sometimes 10 times what it used to be. And that market is what's hurt our country uh, massively. So Shell are benefiting from the global market that's hurting our, our country, costing us 100 billion pounds in the last 12 months. And so I say, I don't care where you say you make your money, you make it in the oil and gas sector, which is hurting our country, and we should tax it. At the same time, I don't know if you saw this, but Shell have been challenged by a group in America. They've been accused of uh, basically misleading shareholders in the stock market. Oh, about renewable energy? Yeah, yeah. Global yeah. Witness, it was the body that did it. They, they put in a complaint to the Securities uh, Commission that, that run the stock market in New York, saying that basically Shell are not telling the truth. They're claiming 12% of all of their capital spending is on renewable energy. Global Witness crunched numbers said actually it's 1.5%. And so that's, uh, that's going to be a really interesting outcome. Globally, the figure is 5%. So Shell are way behind the global average 
average anyway. It's been going up at the rate of about 1% a year, I noticed in the numbers, which which on, on that trajectory means we've got about another 90 years to go before they're spending all their money on renewables, not oil and gas. Well, Gemma on Twitter, a great question is, what do you think of Bristol's airport getting approval to expand? There was a, uh, a hearing this week, of course, uh, challenging this expansion, and those that were challenging it lost this case. So Bristol Airport becomes bigger. This is on your own doorstep, of course. Yeah, so it's on our doorstep, but close to our hearts as well, because we've, you know, we've got to stop the expansion of airports. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, we helped fund the case. I'm disappointed, but not surprised that it was lost. Uh, I know the guys there now looking at the prospects of an appeal. Uh, we'll surely support them with that as well. We'll see what happens. In terms of arguments about, against expansion, I mean, on the face of it, they would be obvious from an environmental perspective <laughs> why you wouldn't want to expand it. Again, if I can just put my pilot's hat on for one second on this one, uh, the answer would be, look, you know, people still need to fly around the world. We've got no other form of doing it efficiently or quickly. So uh, while we're looking for electrified planes, this is what we have to do. Yeah, so I, I reckon this should be the she should be called the devil's advocate episode, Ian, because that's that's your role today, right? You're 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 defending the. The uh, the poor oppressed farmers, oil barons, and and yeah, air, I'm on it all. Airlines. I, I, I'm like that wacky lawyer that, uh, that that only picks up. There was a guy we used to interview, strangely enough, who only his roll call of people that he defended were like Saddam Hussein, Slobodan <laughs> yes. Milosevic. He, I mean, literally, that's what he did uh, all the time. I don't know what happened to him, but yeah. he. Um, yeah, he was a curious character, but they were that was his client, Adolf Hitler, you know, people like that. Right. He'd, uh, he'd, he'd try to defend them all in curious ways. So yeah. t today I am putting my hat of indignation on. Yes, and I suspect you'll be no more successful than he was. I'm pretty sure you're right yeah. on that one. But anyway, basically, right, we 1% <laughs> of the people in the world make 50% of the flights in the world. The idea that we need to be able to do this is not right. There are some journeys that need to be made and can only be made in a plane. I accept that. But there are way more journeys being made in the plane than need to be made in a plane. Half the people in our country never fly. And so one of the arguments for expanding Bristol and other airports is, oh, it's all about giving people access to cheap holidays and stuff like that. But it isn't what's happening. 1% of people are taking 50% of the flights. And, and so this is... This is, again, an example of where richer people are causing vastly more carbon emissions than the rest of us and, and driving the climate crisis, and we shouldn't allow it to happen. It's the fastest growing form of pollution in the world, bar none, and we have to stop it growing. Uh, here's one. Watchdog warns the UK is chronically underspending on climate change adaption. Well, we could have written that headline uh, <laughs> any <laughs> bloody week of this podcast, yeah. of course. Uh, but what do you make of this latest release on pretty much a repetitive yeah. a mantra almost on this issue? Yeah, you know, I saw it and I'm sure they've crunched the numbers and all that kind of stuff. But what it makes me think is... What makes sense? They say we need to spend £10 billion a year uh, to like uh, protect ourselves from floods and droughts and all kinds of bad stuff that's coming, and, and already we can see it. But it, it seems to me that until we've turned the tap off, until we've got emissions down to zero, we should spend all of our money and all of our time on that because otherwise we're fighting a losing battle. We're trying to, you know, uh, I don't know, bail out a bath with the tap still running or something. Uh, so it seems to me that 10 billion, if we can find it, should go on getting to net zero. When we get to net zero, then we can, uh, you know, worry about dealing with what we've created. Uh, and in fact, actually, we'll then have to pull carbon out of the atmosphere to bring it back to pre-industrial levels. At the same time, I think 
If we suffer from some of these droughts and bad things, it'll only encourage us to spend more money and move faster to net zero. If we spend money avoiding the impacts, we might think, oh, that's fine. We can just avoid the impacts. So I kind of, I'm sure they're right on the numbers, but I think they're wrong on the priorities. I don't think we should be doing this. The United Nations say global elites produced almost half of greenhouse emissions. Again, this is another one of those stories that we've discussed many, many times. And you look at it and you think, yeah, how many more times does that line have to be repeated? Yeah, it's a very few people on the planet responsible for maybe half the emissions or something like that. I couldn't read this story because there's a paywall on, uh, on the FT, of course. But, you know, we, we, we've seen it before. and you, I, don't, I you don't pay for the FT. I'm absolutely <laughs> no. staggered to hear this. Oh, you know. But I do think there's a really important point here because, you know, most people in our country and in the world have very small carbon footprints. And the, the crisis that we're in is actually driven by people with, uh, with money, with a lot of money in, in, in many cases, with huge carbon footprints. They're not paying their fair share. And the focus is on getting everybody to do something at the moment from governments around the world. It's the wrong focus. We have to tax the hyper-consumption of the, of the global elite, the 1%, 2 3% that are driving the climate crisis. That's where we need to start. These guys can actually afford it as well. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're shooting at the wrong target when we're shooting at average people and asking them to, you know, travel less, use less energy, create less carbon. They are not the cause Uh, This is from Aaron on Twitter, who says, you mentioned the fossil fuel industry lithium mine. Do you know what process they use this in? I kind of uh, had to look twice at this question. It's not about lithium. Uh, Uh, We talked about cobalt. I'm sure this is about cobalt because electric cars, they have their detractors. You know, people on the right wing of life like to say, oh, yes, but, you know. And in this case, it's the fact that there is some cobalt in some lithium batteries, uh, not all of them. And in some cases, it is mined by children. I think that's very much uh, in the minority. And that's the question that gets thrown. So I did say, well, look, the fossil fuel industry has been using this forever in vast amounts. uh, And it's being used uh, to answer the question in the fuel refining process. Got it. Do you think that because this comes up as the sort of the reason why it's all bollocks, basically, that's that's (laughs) tends to be if I can just put my Jeremy Clarkson hat on. Or you're one one of them as well. (laughs) (laughs) Just for one second and say. Hang on a second. Uh, you know, this is, you know, clearly we're, it's, this is the equivalent of sending kids up chimneys, right? That's the sort of territory we're in. Yeah, that's exactly right. By the way, Jeremy Clarkson, uh, back in the day when we put the nemesis on the road around 2010, he once described me in his column as the man whose name I can't be bothered to remember. Did he? That's, <laughs> I did. But that, I would take that. I like that. That's yeah, I liked a, it. Yeah, I'd take that every Although, day. Yeah, I'm under his skin. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is a great story. UK's first vegan carvery has the Daily Mail up in arms. Well, it would, wouldn't it, right? I mean, it's a complete provocation to the Daily Mail. Uh, this this little pub somewhere up in Worcestershire has, has got a vegan-only menu, uh, making a crack in Sunday dinner. 15 ingredients, apparently. I had a quick look. And uh, it's super popular. People are coming from everywhere to try it, which, okay, is not that good for the environment if they're driving uh, you know, gas-guzzling cars. But you know, push that to one side. Um, why wouldn't it provoke the Daily Mail? Well, you'd be doing something wrong if you didn't provoke the Daily Mail, of course. <laughs> Every day I check myself. I, Why would I'm they tick- be bothered? <laughs> I have a tick list before I go to bed, and one of them says, did you provoke the Daily Mail? <laughs> Indeed. Uh, but why would they be bothered about a vegan carvery? I mean, if you don't want to go there, don't go there. Yeah, that's right, isn't it? Isn't it? And, of course, the greatest vegan food, well, I say the greatest, I mean, the greatest in the sense as most prolific and widespread, are chips. 
<laughs> that's funny. So who doesn't like chips, for God's sake? So but yeah, yeah, yeah but, but so many people don't know they're vegan. And you know, this story comes from uh, an, an, an interview that I did with Big Dunk on Sky last week when he signed for Forest Green. This is Duncan Ferguson, yeah. uh, ex of Everton. And uh, they started to grill him about vegan food and said, you know, have you had much vegan food? And he was like, well, I'm not really sure. I don't think so. And I said to him, well, chips are vegan. And he looked at me, what, chips are vegan? I'm like, yeah, chips are vegan. It was a very funny moment. Um, Greenpeace, <laughs> Greenpeace clipped it for their Instagram. and got like 400,000 views. Brilliant, brilliant. But, but the point here is like uh, the, the, the badge of veganism and, and vegan food often gets in the way of, of people. You know, of course, chips are vegan, mushy peas are vegan, all kinds of things are vegan, you know. Uh, but if you call them vegan, it, it, it just makes somebody, it harder. Yeah, so, somebody gets the hump and starts howling, <laughs> howling at the moon or something. But there is, in fact, I, I, can, I can add another one in here, toast. Now, yes. everybody... That likes toast it is yes. we once did a phone in on what's the quickest most satisfying so what's the most satisfying food that is the quickest to prepare and the answer is toast every day of the week it, t- it takes yeah. nothing to, to make toast it takes like 90 seconds in a toaster <laughs> so toast vegan yeah. chips vegan yes two, two of the most widespread things on the planet that popular, are eaten right are both foods yeah I mean, about as popular chips. as it gets yeah, absolutely. And whenever I'm asked, uh, and I'm often asked, what's my favorite food at Forest Green? Because, you know, it's always about the food. Uh, well, sometimes about the football. I say the same <laughs> thing. I say the same thing as chips. And they're like, oh, come on. You have yeah. to come up with something more exotic than that. But, you know, I won't. And, of course, you know, the, the chip sandwich combination, of course, oh. you know, has both of those things going on. <laughs> with brown sauce. With brown sauce, come yeah. Come on. Come on. I'm going to have chips tonight, actually. I'm, I'm off to play footy, and afterwards I'm going to get some chips. Yeah. It, that's the thing with chips, isn't it? Uh, oh. and, and other people's always taste better than <laughs> yours for some strange reason. Uh, final question from Mariek on Facebook, who says, why are you backing the legal campaign to protect the river? Why? Is it something about the river or the cause itself? Well, it's both. Um, you know, the riverway is badly affected by factory farming. Uh, this legal action that I'm backing is uh, to challenge a recent decision to allow another factory farm that will uh, pump ship basically into the river Wye. And, uh, and at the same time, it's also challenging a very interesting principle. When the decision uh, to consent this was given, no cumulative impact was taken into account, which is, is stupid, right? I mean, why wouldn't you say, well, what's happening already and how will this add to it? Well, that's what happened. So we're challenging that. And uh, an even bigger principle that we're challenging, and if we win, it could make it much harder to build any more factory farms anywhere uh, that would run into wow. a river. And, and this is the precautionary principle, which is enshrined in law, uh, but isn't being used in the planning for these things. The idea that if you aren't sure what harm it might cause, then you don't do it. Yeah. It's massive, actually, isn't it? I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely huge. Um, Dale, that's it. We're done. We're Damn. out of here. I was just having fun. Uh, you can go, I know. You can go and play football and eat some chips now. <laughs> and you can go and take all them hats off. Oh, so many hats. It's like, a, what do you call it? trying to think of the name. What's the name of a milliner, isn't it? Is it a milliner? I think it's a milliner, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like yeah. a milliner's empire around here, Dale. <laughs> Terrible. Won't happen again. Uh, we'll speak in a week, Dale. Yeah, nice one. See you then. Have a good one. That's it for this episode. Don't forget to follow this podcast from your podcast provider so you get each new episode automatically. Leave a review there as well. You want to get in touch, you can do so on email zerocarbonista at ecotristy.co.uk. Really important bit to follow Dale on social media, twitter.com slash dalevince, facebook.com slash dalevince, and on Insta and on TikTok too.
Zero. Carbon. East off.